This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. Well, now what do you know about literary prizes? I bet you do a lot, David. Well, one or two that I've heard about, never won. (laughs) Well, for a book to win a literary prize, there are sets of steps. There's the long list and then the short list from which the judges decide. The winner is announced at an event and the money is forthcoming. But where does the money come from? In Colin Petruni's The Bannerman Shortlist, we're going to start with the money. Welcome, Colin. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you for writing such a fabulous book. The Bannermans have been a wealthy London family for many generations. Where did they get their money from? So uh, the Bannermans' fortune found its origins in the sugar trade in the 18th and 19th century. Yes, a, a trade that's steeped in blood, violence, dispossession, and uh, general misery, I suppose. Yes, that's where they that, where they got their money. A wealthy London family. And we're going to start with Colin actually reading a little bit from page eight. And it's Pip Gideon's mother. Okay. From the ages of five to 13, Pip packed Gideon off to board at All Hallows School in Somerset. It was here that Gideon navigated the drama of puberty in the spooky confines of Cranmire Hall. In those pre-co-ed days, the school boarded boys from upper and upper-middle-class families from across the country. From the relatively dull routine of Harvest Place, with his parents' frosty silences and occasional bouts of domestic and psychological violence, Gideon was pitched into a world of fraternal love, sadism, tribal loyalty and boyish sexual adventurism that formed the basis of his preparation to enter the world. That's his background. (laughs) Gideon's parents set up the Bannerman Literary Prize and the winner was announced at a formal reception at which their son, Gideon Bannerman, was only ever invited once. And why was that? He managed to disgrace himself when he was 14. He was invited to the prize and he met another 14-year-old, a girl called Natasha Mowbray, who became a lifelong friend of Gideon's. And on that occasion, at the first and only dinner that, that they attended, they both got incredibly drunk. <laughs> and he managed to not only vomit, but wet himself. <laughs> so this was 14 years old. Yep. They met again at university. This is Gideon and Tasha. And this is a quote. There was a place that valued and rewarded wit, intelligence, beauty and brilliance. In all these areas, Gideon Bannerman was found wanting. <laughs> but it was Tasha. She excelled at uni. And uh, she wrote 12 novels and she had a friendship with Gideon for over 50 years. She did, yeah. And, you know, what did Gideon offer her? I suppose at their first meeting, she kind of recognised in Gideon that he was a kind of, I guess, a gentle soul and somebody that she could find a connection with. They both, in their own ways, were being raised in domestic situations that were suboptimal. Gideon, because of his parents, uh, their marriage was not a happy one, and particularly his mother was not a happy woman. And uh, Tasha was being raised by a single parent. His, her father was an author and, as it turns out, a manic depressive. So they kind of bonded, I suppose, um, as you do when you're 14, with somebody who you think you find a connection with. So over this friendship of 50 years, mm. Gideon had supported Tasha a lot. Let's hear a little bit more. Okay. 
Her two abortions and a miscarriage, two divorces, both writers, Jeremy, a violently abusive Welsh poet, and then Giles, an amphetamine-addicted post-structuralist from Leeds. More than one flirtation with alcoholism and one dismally unsuccessful attempt at lesbianism that left her with a black eye and a restraining order. (laughs) But Gideon, with the Bannerman Literary Prize, what job did he give Tasha? Eventually, uh, Tasha becomes the chair of the Literary Prize. After an incredibly distinguished um, academic career, she's quite a celebrated author in her own right. And I guess he entrusted her uh, to kind of steer the prize through uh, longlisting and shortlisting and then negotiating with the, the various kind of jurists on the panel for the prize to arrive at a winner, which is indeed what she does in the, in the, in the course of this book. Colin Petruni, you use such a, a clever wit you know, by <laughs> telling us who these judges are and what field they're in. And even going back to the doctoral and PhD thesis Tasha did, look, it's just it was a joy to read. Them. Well, I guess, you know, I, I considered my job to make the world real for the reader. Um, I had to create a whole kind of literary kind of world. And also it's a world away from us here in Melbourne. It's all set in, in London mostly, although the last chapter is set in Mexico City. Uh, yeah, I guess I, I just needed, I guess I really enjoyed uh, the layering of detail of these characters. Each Thursday, Tasha and Gideon would have dinner together and... Uh, Nine years ago, she met Gideon's future husband for the first time, Yuri Kazensadov. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this humour that you bring in, you also made Gideon a member of many interesting boards and the Tunnel? The Tunnel the Trust. Trust. This is where they met. He met his future husband, Yuri, um, at a meeting of the Tunnel Trust. The Tunnel Trust really refers to the light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, The Tunnel Trust is really about rehabilitating ex-prisoners, I suppose, into the world. Um, And so those rehabilitations can can mean that those prisoners end up being kind of car park attendants or working at supermarkets and so forth. And and often they would get somebody in to give their personal journey uh, from prison to the, the checkout at uh, Woolworths. Yes, yeah. and in the way there might have been a bit of sex. Anyway, so, <laughs> but what did Tasha think of this new husband? She immediately Yuri. felt suspicious of Yuri. Mm. We find out later on whether her suspicions were well-founded fi- mm. or not. Yes, she. Uh, you, you could tell uh, from their first exchange that she was... Um, that she smelt a rat, I guess. But interestingly, Yuri also understood that she was going to be a formidable kind of obstacle in the way of his affections for uh, for Gideon. No plot spoilers, but um, it does get resolved in one way or another. Well, the first chapter, which we've done a lot of this background to, gives a laugh-out-loud early explanation of Gideon's sexual preferences and the vivid erotica he found in church. The next six chapters start with a coloured print of the cover of one of the shortlisted books. Yep. And for many writers, thinking up just one plot can be exhaustive. But you had to get the inspiration for six Shortlisted books. Did you did you dig deep into a satirical vein? Uh, well, I guess I'm a I'm a very big reader, 
I love, I love reading and I have loved reading since I was a child. So I kind of really understood the world of books. Interestingly, David Marr said to me after he'd read the book, he said, you've squandered six plots for six fantastic books in this one book. But I guess, again, getting back to the the whole issue of making the world real for the reader, uh, the covers of the books really are just a, a, another kind of tool, I suppose, to, to kind of really make the, the world kind of more vivid, I suppose. Yeah. But even the choice of publishers is just <laughs> hysterical. You know, Linnet Press, you know, one of one of the characters in one of these books is a, a keen bird watcher until he was got raped, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and the, Old Holland... No, New, uh, New Holland. Holland. New Holland. The book about, you know, Australian colonials is published yep. by New Holland. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> anyway, let's get to the books. Shortlists often have some reliability. There is the literary author who is always listed. The surprise of a popular fiction novel, a European and an author from a Commonwealth country. And then the controversial authors who have broached difficult subjects or introduced a brand new way of writing literature. <laughs> no, I see that all the time. Yeah, of and course. Here you've got it. <laughs> In clever compression, we don't not only get a summary of the books, but also the authors themselves. There's probably a more literate term than I'm going to use, but I'd say it's bookends. Ah, uh, yes. You know, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, the first one. Well, the author, Isabel Delby, when the publisher chose to actually publish the book, what was the one thing Isabel said? I don't know whether I'm allowed to say this well, on Well, you can't change the title. <laughs> the title is C, asterisk, asterisk, T. Yes. Um, and Isabel Delby says to her publisher, it's really important that that remains the title of the book. And uh, her publisher says, oh, no, I want to keep that title. That's going to move units. Um, <laughs> and it did, from yeah. 523 copies sold to yeah. being shortlisted. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and there you use the bookends of the red velvet dress. Ah, yes. It was hanging on the door at the beginning and at the end. And in the middle we got the book, what it was about and all. All about Isabel Dal Dalby, the writer. She was the youngest, and then the oldest, Martin Gilray. Yes, eighty-one-year-old face of a national institution. His public admiration led to many affairs. Yes, yes. yes. So um, I kind of modelled Martin Gilray on a writer that I admire enormously, an Australian author, Patrick White, mm. who I think every Australian writer sort of writes in his shadow, I guess. But yeah, I wanted that hard granite face and that kind of implacable kind of personality. Yes, but he's not the most uh, faithful husband to his wife. <laughs> the bookend here was the decision that he doesn't want to be there. No. Right at the beginning, and he makes that decision at the end. Julian Adagok. Adagoki, yeah. The Broken Tooth Upstairs. Yes. Right. Now, this was this was a whole new way of writing a book. That's How did right. he write the entire book? So Julian's book uh, comprises some thousands of text messages between um, a couple. And, and they, those text messages chart their relationship from the beginning um, to its gradual disintegration. And so uh, that's how Julian's constructed his book. And it's considered to be quite a radical choice for the shortlist. The book ends here, the book signing, 
with a woman and a nasal problem. It's just, look, you've got to read it. You've got to see it. It's just great. We have to go very quickly through the last ones. The uh, Catherine Adler, Commonwealth Bastard. Yeah. The Identity Theft of Individual and a Nation. And Eating was the with the Queen or Eating with Her Sister. Yes. Bookends. Kai Noguchi, The Illustrated Danish Tree. Yes. At 19th, oh, The Train Trip. Yes. And Buying a Ring. Alex Cosco, the foreign body's best-selling author of thrillers. Well, he had such a different public and private um, Life, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, dear. There's humour all the way through it. The ability to get whole life circumstances and personalities into a paragraph. Colin, you did this beautifully. Oh, thank you. I'm going you. to get you to read from one last bit. Okay. Uh, and this is about Catherine Adler, the author of uh, Commonwealth Bastard. and her parents. her parents, yes. Their father drifted away from the family when Thea reached her teens. At 55 years old, at a time when some men start to dye their hair, wear chunky silver neck chains and gain comfort from expensive soulmates half their age, their father developed a passion for beekeeping and retired to the southern coast of Tasmania. Their mother had been a runner-up Miss Australia in 1960. During the competition, she was asked what personal achievement made her most proud. She flashed a dazzling smile and replied, My hair! Uh, she barely seemed to register her husband's departure, settling into a life of mild resentments, bitterness and competitive amateur golf. After each shortlisted chapter... There is an update of what's happening. Why is Tasha so concerned about Gideon? So at the end of chapter one, Gideon Bannerman disappears. And threaded throughout the book, Tasha Mowbray tries to discover what happened to him. She's desperate because uh, she's uh, he's been her friend, her confidant for 50 years. And she says, he's my history and I need to find him. Mm. And indeed, she does. we do find out what happened to Gideon at the end of the book, and we find out who won the prize. We do, we do. It's a beautiful book. The quality of the pages, the coloured prints of the covers on the shortlisted books, and the end papers, a work <laughs> of literate art in themselves. <laughs> so it's your own longhand in that? It is, yeah. I, my first draft is always written in longhand, so yep. Colin Batruni has creatively crafted six books and authors for a literary prize, the Bannerman Shortlist, as well as a mystery involved an enduring friendship of very different characters, a beautifully produced book by Clouds of Magellan. Thank you very much, Colin. Thank you, Jan. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Jan. Thanks, Colin. And here's my interview with J.P. Pamar. It is hard to be rational and level-headed when a loved one goes missing, but there is more to J.P. Pamar's latest novel, Home Before Night, than one can imagine. So, J.P., welcome back to 3CR. Thanks for having me back on. You begin during a pandemic, and you've actually used that to create further tension. Mm. So was it because we were in a pandemic or did you just want to make it topical? I think it was a bit of an outlet for me. But it's that thing, you know, you read a crime novel and the more uh, kind of perimeters or restrictions you put on the narrative, I would say almost the easier it is for the author. But it creates the sort of almost closed kind of environment, closed circuit kind of thing where... Just putting these limits in place suddenly gives you focus. You're not called upon to imagine endless scenarios. It's very limited what could be the could have happened here. 
But there's a certain heightened psychological tension mm. because Samuel, the character uh, we're waiting on, has to return home before lockdown because there are fines and this yeah. is applying pressure to people. Yeah. I mean, I, I probably tapped into my own anxieties about lockdown. I, I was developing this kind of anxiety about fines and, and I just thought everyone's pretty reasonable. In terms of our storyline, Samuel is missing and Lou, his mother, is driven to distraction. So he hasn't come back, even though curfew is about to be uh, called and he has to be home. So there's the psychological pressure there on Lou. But now, this is how your story begins. We've got this prologue of a baby left on a beach while... A father-husband attempts to rescue his wife who's got uh, into trouble in the water. So, again, this might pick up on your own personal experience this, of having a newborn. This happened. This happened. Um, I didn't let my wife drown. But it was a hot day, no one on the beach, Ryback Beach, notorious for rips. Lots of people drown out that way. And really hot, and she goes, I might just cool off. And she was walking straight for a rip. She stood up and goes, there's a a quiet patch there. And I said to her, just before you do, because I didn't have my notebook or my phone, I said, can you send me a text message? I've got a good idea for a story. And then she goes, what is it? I said, well, a couple are on the beach. They've got their newborn baby down there and a Moses basket between them. The wife decides to get up and go for a swim. And she's like, I'm not sending you this. I'm like, no, no, send it to me. It's really good. And then she's like, okay, cool. Then what happens? I said, well... She doesn't realise she's walking straight into a rip. She gets dragged out to see. Husband has to decide whether he stays with the baby or saves the wife. <laughs> she was, of course, like, uh, you know, she swore. But it was just such a good setup, and I, I thought I have to use this. And it tells you a lot about the characters. What what would you choose to do? You know, how would I respond to this situation? Um, and what would it tell people about me? So it's a, it was quite a fun way to start the book. But it's also then that concern for a child carries over. So Samuel's a lot older, in his 20s or so, thereabouts. Mm. Uh, Do you still have that protective instinct in the future? But here we have this prologue that then is sitting in the background Mm. of this story and we move forward again. Samuel hasn't returned home. Lou is concerned, but we have an element of gaslighting then that takes place because Lou's ex-husband, Marco, is rung. Is he there? Who? Samuel? Yes, Samuel. Who else? No, he's not here. He was supposed to be visiting you today. Well, he never came by. Why don't you call him? Oh, that's a grand idea. Why didn't I think of that? I'm hanging up, Lou. I don't want you getting snarky. I let the breath drain out of my chest. Stay calm, Lou. A son might be missing, Marco. He makes an ugly, dismissive hissing sound. Missing? He was there this morning, right? He's probably with Jessica. And all the way through the story, generally, Marco is dismissing his wife. Is she paranoid? I'm kind of with Marco on that particular exchange, oddly. Uh, You know, he's an arsehole, and I'm not with him for any any of the other parts of the story. But certainly in those early stages, it's mother's intuition, which, as you learn, she's she's paranoid, and and it all stems from that day on the beach. and the slightly fraught relationship with her ex and this dependence on her son, you know, for meaning, really, in her, in her life. But I like the gaslighting thing because you, even on Zoom, it was hard to get emotional support. It was hard to get um, make contact with 
empirical reality, right? You're experiencing the world almost exclusively through a screen, except when you go to get your groceries, otherwise you're just locked in your house. And so so you do lose touch. It was quite easy, I think, for people to um, feel displaced, but also just to feel a sense of absolute loneliness. And when people are dismissing her concerns, she does, yeah, she's gaslit by not just her ex, but everyone seems to be saying that. And she's called delusional at one stage, to which she replies to Marco, you're sociopathic, which is interesting. They're both right, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Now, you have then in the background Samuel's relationship with Jessica. Mm -hmm. So here we go, another bit of tension, a relationship. But then you've added another rabbit hole dimension here. She's the daughter of of a fundamentalist Christian, and you pick up on a whole other trope, which you've touched Mm. on before in in previous novels. Her father is the pastor of the Breakthrough Church. Would you care to tell us a little about the Breakthrough Church? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny because it was um, modelled off a very famous Australian church, and I'm always wary of getting in trouble or getting my publisher in trouble, so I won't say which one. And there's quite a lot of coverage for this church lockdown. Um, but also, I just take issue with any sort of fundamentalism and, and devotion without pausing to be reasonable or consider, you know, like anyone who's convinced they're right about anything, almost, like I'm, I'm sceptical of, but certainly any sort of organised religion. But, but fundamentalism, I, I take issue with, and I wanted to kind of... Um, I've become quite cynical and think about money and think about all the reasons people might join a church other than faith. And so um, it made for a great kind of plot, I think. But it raises certain questions about why Samuel isn't there. There could be a couple of possibilities. Mm. He could be with his girlfriend, point number one. His girlfriend, Jessica, could be pregnant, point number two, or the family, Jessica's family, has taken certain actions, but we don't know which. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's a short novel, but I wanted to pack a lot of story into it. And what that does is keeps the pace up, of course, but the challenge with that is letting the reader sit in certain theories before you dispel that myth of, of what could be happening and whether or not you return to it, or, you know, and, and ways to undermine it. And it's hard to do in a short novel because you want to sort of direct the attention towards a red herring, let's say, and let them come to that conclusion by themselves before you sort of undermine that. And in 180 pages, if you can do it a couple of times, it's it's good fun. But you don't want them to happen so quickly that one page the readers sit back saying, and then the next page it's gone. But you've almost placed us in loop position, wondering what has happened, wondering what is going on, what are the possibilities? Yeah. And she eventually hires a, a private investigator. Yeah, yeah. So we see the return of Reed, who was, who was such a fun character. And, he, and and so many readers want another Reed novel, so I thought I'll, I'll put him in here, because <laughs> he's so fun to write. And he's probably the only one who's pretty measured about his response to her son potentially being missing and gives us some really practical ways to investigate without breaching the lockdown. We also then have the, the husband uh, who comes under scrutiny, Marco, drinking and driving for Marco. Yeah. Drinking seems to be a common theme in many of my books, unfortunately. Um, but Marco, his sort of fraught relationship 
with his wife's traceable to two things. One, that day on the beach, but two, something that happened when they were drinking and driving a long time ago. So it was, it was a nice way to kind of point to his failures as a husband and father as well. Another thing he did years ago. And also, you know, that's the fun thing about psychological thrillers is uncovering their sordid history and secrets. And at the centre of the story, the, the, the main question we're asking is, can you ever really live with a secret? You know, can you ever really, if you do something bad and horrible and wrong, will it ever go away? Does it ever disappear? And in my head, the answer is always no. Um, you know, you're changed. You're, you're, you're fundamentally changed. And there are several secrets, which is the one that is most compromising, which brings us back then to Samuel, who has been in touch, but there's compromised connections over Zoom and such like. So they're trying to interpret what is in fact going on. But the storyline is generally told from Lou's point of view. Mm. But then you have intermittent scenes with Samuel, which again brings up that tension because, as you're saying, Zoom, what's the reality? Yeah. Interpreting not what he's saying, but what's in the background. How do we know what's going on? Yeah, we behave in certain ways for people we love that are, that are questionable. You know, we keep things from the people who are closest to us because we don't want them to worry about us. And so Samuel does a bit of this. He cares deeply for Lou. She raised him and, and he loves her and he doesn't want her to worry about where he's at. And he doesn't want her to fret and he wants to kind of, I guess, solve this himself. But the other thing, I wanted Samuel to have his own voice and his own agency because when you get to the end, you realise it's his story um, as much as Lou's. Ultimately, Samuel's probably the most changed through this well, Samuel has disappeared. He could be held hostage or we're not really sure. Or he may have a motivation because of Jessica. But it is Samuel's discovery, which we can't give away necessarily. But basically, I know he's telling me the truth about what happened, which makes mum and dad liars. Mm. So here we have a son, a child, discovering that his parents aren't necessarily the perfect people that he thought they might be. Yeah, that's that's right. I write so much about family and all my novels, I think. Certainly, you know, I think my first couple in The Clearing, Call Me Envy, were both very much about family. I think I've returned to that here. I wanted to write about how our perception of our parents and our family change when we learn who they really are because even I find myself doing it with my three-year-old daughter you know like I don't want her to know all the me you know and, and and even with my wife I don't want her to know everything about me I don't want to give up everything I don't want her to doubt me in any way so you do you do kind of keep some part of yourself hidden and you know I think about there's a great novel by Jessica Egan called The Candy House and you can get and you can kind of access everyone's history you know and it's all AI and it's a bit speculative but I remember thinking how horrible that would be for everyone to know everything about everyone else. And it's just, you remove any kind of mystery. And then you get to, to see the ugly side of people as well. Well, your daughter will eventually read your novel. So <laughs> no, she may find I'm, out I'm something about I'm already terrified. Um, hopefully, you know, AI is writing such great literature by that stage that she won't even dream of picking up one of my old novels, you know. <laughs> well, it leaves us a good question to go out on, basically, about parents and the secrets that they have and whether listeners are now questioning their own parents or what they have done as parents because everything comes back ultimately to that baby on the beach which is where we started mm. and of course uh, psychological thriller 
the listener, the reader, is going to have to find out for themselves. So the book is Home Before Night, a sort of pandemic novel. The author is J.P. Pamar, and it's a Hachette release. So, J.P., thank you once more for talking with us. Well, thanks so much for, for having me on, and I would say... You know, we talk about it being a pandemic novel. I'm not trying to push anyone back into that traumatic time. <laughs> but but the constraints of the pandemic yeah, yeah. have, have it's added. Very, it's because I describe it as a pandemic novel, but at its heart, it's a sort of palate cleanser, thriller. You know, it's, it's a um, suspense novel. But there is, yeah, the, the setup's definitely pandemic. Yeah, we can look at the <laughs> pandemic and appreciate the constraints and therefore the psychological tension yeah. that Lou and Marco and the others in the novel find themselves I find, in. I, I, even I find it triggering thinking about <laughs> lockdowns and, you know, that awful time. So, um, yeah, hopefully, hopefully people can get past that and enjoy this story. Thanks, Debbie. Cheers. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.